Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now, here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Good morning. morning. Y'all doing all right? I'm glad to see you. Let me invite you to take your Bibles. If you brought a copy of the scriptures with you and open with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, we're going to bring to a conclusion today this series we've been working on uh, for some time now uh, out of Acts 2 called A Church to Change the World. And as we bring that to a conclusion today, uh, I want to deal with an area of devotion uh, of the early church. I want us to kind of look at it. Here's what, here's the title of today's message. We're in it together. Prayer. Let me uh, uh, say to you as we kick, as I kick off this message here, um, let me say to you, this is the sixth and final message in the series that we started uh, really at, um, uh, that we started right at Pentecost. And uh, this series or this message, if you will, in it we've looked at a number of different activities and characteristics of the early church. We've looked at what did the church do, the early church? What was it about Jesus that so affected them, that so impacted them, that so shifted their way of thinking that their lives were turned upside down and that he used them as world changers? What did they do? What were their qualities? What was this like? And we've talked about a number of those different things, but one we've not really drilled in on, and I want to spend our time here this morning in thinking about it, is because of their sacrifice, this group of people were all that each other really had. Now let me defend that statement. When they made a decision to come to Christ, they came from somewhere, and for many of them, they had to leave somewhere behind because of their commitment to Jesus. And what they left behind cost, but it left this group of people that when they looked left and right, they said, you know what? You're our new family. You're our new community. You're our new people. And we're, we have one another. We may only have one another, but we have one another. The early church came to discover that when they in their act of resistance, in their break from the Jewish teachings, in their break from Jewish traditions, even in their uh, setting aside of an identity that they had before, and their acceptance of this new identity as then followers of the way, as what we understand today as followers of Christ, followers of Jesus as Christians, that this, that, that they, were, they were to be emboldened by and, and, and committed to this new oneness that God had called them to. Now, we talked about unity or oneness a few weeks ago, and we talked about it as, as something supernatural, as a fulfillment of a promise of God, the Holy Spirit, how He supernaturally provides unity that the church is to maintain or to hold on to. But I want to speak about how that's lived out Today. So as we come to kind of a conclusion, as we bring all of that together, I want to show you four tangible areas in which men and women and boys and girls and all of the early church shared life together. My hope is, is that with me, you'll have a burden to be used by God as a church to change the world that would both desire and devote ourselves 
to these four areas as well. I want to show them to you. We're going to be in Acts 2. We're going to begin in verse 41 and we're going to go all the way down to verse 47 once again. So if you're able, could I invite you to stand with me in honor of the Word of God? Acts 2 verse 41 and following. So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, even in these moments that we have together, would you so speak to our hearts that we would recognize and understand the community that you've called us to, that we would grasp the fact that we're in it together. And would you so put your finger on things in our lives that uh, maybe are not in alignment with that? Would you so impress a desire in our hearts so that we can respond in worship as we accept it? It's about you, Lord. So have your will and way in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you for standing. You be seated. And hey, if you'd like to follow along on the notes or the outline of this, I want to show you, as I mentioned to you, four areas that I want you to see in this message of how this is lived out of, of what it is to be in it together. Now, if you've got the church app and you ought to have it, it's free for a download. You can have it. You could just go right there to the Sunday morning sheet. You'll see the sermon outline and all is there. If you don't have it, but you'd like to follow along, you'd like to see the scriptures we're referring to, you'd like to fill in the outline, you can do that by texting the word notes to the number that you see on the screen. And, uh, and we'll send you a link to that. You'll have it directly on your device and you can fill it in or you can follow along, uh, whatever works for you. Okay, let me show you these four areas uh, to see. I want you to see, first of all, as this church considered what God had called them to, they experienced together a shared mission, a shared mission. In other words, one of the things that drew them together was the fact that yes, they were called out of something, but they were called to something. Yes, God had saved them from something, but he had saved them for something. They had a mission that they all shared together. Look at verse 42. It says, they were continually devoting themselves, the apostles teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were, first of all, devoted. I shared with you before, but this is a, this is a passionate pursuit of a zealous working commitment toward something. They were devoted to, in other words, they expended energy, they placed focus, they pursued with passion this particular thing. And there's a list of those there. We looked a couple weeks ago that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching or biblical doctrine. Now I want you to see that they were also devoted to fellowship. To fellowship. That's the Greek word koinonia. Now that's not important except you want to see in other places where that's used. Where does this come together? What does it mean to be devoted to fellowship? The word means uh, to have association. It means to have communion or a close relationship amongst people. It's a it's family. It's a, it's a group of people committed to one another. They're together. They're family. 
just like your family. It's a, it's a commitment that transcends circumstance. It's a commitment that draws them together through thick and thin, through good and bad, through joy and sorrow. They were family together. They did life together. They were a family that if today they would be hanging out together by the pool, they would be uh, uh, pulling weeds together in the beds. They would be crying together over loss and they would be rejoicing and celebrating together over victory. They were family. And that's what he called them to. They devoted themselves to this. Fellowship in addition to being, uh, to, to being this kind of family, it speaks of a missional pursuit of the church. In other words, they were headed towards something. They shared a mission together. That's part of what it is to be family together or be connected together. They were in pursuit of something together. If you're taking notes, jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4. Paul, writing, commends uh, a church that's struggling financially, that's struggling to care for their own needs. And he says, they were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. The word there, participation, it's the word koinonia. It's the word fellowship. Here's what he said. Here's a church that even is separated from the saints in Jerusalem, that, that so knows about their difficulties that said, we're struggling too, but hey, please, Paul, let us be a part of meeting the needs of our family, of our koinonia. We want the koinonia with them. We want to fellowship together. We want to participate in that. Same word we saw in Philippians chapter 1 when we went through our series in Philippians and verse 5 where Paul prayed and he said, I thank God always in view of your koinonia in the gospel, your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. They shared a mission together. They said, we're on mission together. I could say so much more about that, but uh, I'm, looking out at, uh, I'm looking out at James and Tracy and thinking, you know what? When they return home, they don't return alone. They return with a family. Their mission, our mission, our mission, their mission. It's, it's we engaged in the mission. Does that make sense? That's the, idea that's, that's the idea that's presented here. They were participating. They were fellowshipping together. I've been a Baptist longer than I've been a Christian. I was taught fellowship meant food. I was taught fellowship meant that you just sat around and had a, a potluck or a covered dish. Everybody raced to get Mabel's banana pudding. If you could just get there first, you could have some. Oh, but fellowship's a much deeper word than a covered dish or endless fried chicken as good as that is. It's much beyond that. It's koinonia. It's a, it's a connection, a shared purpose in missional pursuit. It, it describes the idea of the one another's that we find in the scripture. Now you may, if you ever want to have fun, just do, a, just do a phrase search for one another and look how in the New Testament what the church did for one another. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Jesus said, John 13, verse 14, <clears throat> If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now that's a strange statement, except Jesus isn't worried about foot hygiene here. Here's what he's saying. If I, the supreme one, the Lord, would serve you, you ought to serve one another. He says we're the object of service for one another. We're the instruments of service toward one another. 
John 13, verse 34, Jesus said it's a marker of our identity. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. He says whatever it is to love, the way Jesus loved us, we are to express that type of love toward one another. And it becomes a way that the world even would identify us. Romans 12 and verse 10, be devoted, there's our word, to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Romans 14 verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. You mean... Boy, I could go down there for a minute. I don't have time. I'll come back to that. Romans 14, verse 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We encourage, build up one another. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That, show, that throws my theory on Mabel's banana pudding out, doesn't it? Galatians 5 verse 13. Some of you go to primetime or dinner know what I just said. And we're just going to leave it right there. Because I've never gotten a bowl of banana pudding from that mix. But some of y'all will chase her down in the parking lot. I'm not saying just to get your bowl first. You ought to bring the preacher. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. That's not how that works. Galatians 5 verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I could go on and on. There are so many one another's to look at that deal with our actions. But here's the deal. Jesus said, you're so together, you ought to be focused on one another. That's part of what it is to be family. That's part of what it is to experience koinonia. That's part of the deal. This is only the tip of the iceberg. Sometimes folks struggle with that though. Some man went to his pastor one time and, and said to him, tested him by the way, pastor, do you think people have to go to church to get to heaven? The pastor thought about it a moment and he said, well, well, no, no, they don't. The man just puffed his chest out and he said, that's right, good answer. The pastor paused for a moment and he said to him, but why would you want to? I mean, why would you want to go to heaven? There you're going to be singing with the saints and worshiping Jesus and hanging out together and doing life together. If you don't like hanging out with people now, why would you want to spend eternity doing it? Y'all got awful quiet. Are you okay? Yeah. Because here's the deal. We're in it together. There are no solos. The Lone Ranger may be in heaven, but he's not Lone Ranger in it while he's there. We're a together group of people and we have a shared mission. Not only devoted to fellowship, but notice secondly, they had shared lives. They shared their lives together. Verse 42 again, they were continually devoting themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They shared lives together. I want you to see how this flows from the one another's. This means these folks didn't have like their church friends and over here they had their they had their work associates and over here they had their weekend go to the lake friends and over here they had their uh, their their neighbor friends. They were integrated in all aspects of life together as a community. 
Now, it's not that, it's not that, that, uh, that, that they didn't hang out with these folks because they had these folks. They were just, they were so committed to one another that they were invested and involved in and integrated in in every aspect of people's lives together. Now, I know some folks go, well, you know, I go to my church folks on Sunday. That's my church bucket. But then I've got a group of people that I, I, I go to sporting events with. And I got another group of people that our kids hang out together. I got another group of people that just do this. I, mean, I don't know why I would do that with church folks. Well, because you're the one another's. That's why. You know, we'd be fully integrated with one another because we were created for the one another's. Now, the early church had no choice, but we get the blessed and the privilege of being able to do that together. They didn't have compartmentalized. They were integrated. And by the way, that doesn't always come naturally. How do you know that, Chris? Because they devoted themselves to it. And to be devoted to something means it took effort on their part from which they were both intentional and willful in their pursuit. In other words, they said, man, I want to get to know one another. I want to get involved in each other's lives. I want to do that. I want to be engaged with these. Now, some think, well, when you talk about breaking bread, which is that tightness of community that I'm talking about here, when you talk about breaking bread, they think, well, that's just a reference to the Lord's Supper. Well, it may involve that, but it's far more than that. Because see, the table or breaking bread, that's the passage we're looking at. The breaking bread coming together right there really represented the most intimate connection that people had. People got together to break bread in the most well, with people they liked and with people they wanted to connect with and people they wanted to instruct and people that they depended upon, people that depended on them. They shared meals together because in the breaking of bread, there was intimacy and connection and encouragement and instruction. In fact, if you want to have some more fun in Bible study, take and research all the times Jesus just spent time at the table just teaching his disciples how to live life together. I could show you a dozen different stories, but let me just give you two examples other than the Passover. And most folks would say, well, the Passover, obviously, sure, I got that one. We'll check that one off. Let me give you two other than the Passover that it really does kind of connect. Jot down if you're taking notes, Luke chapter 7, just 36 and following. There, let me tell you the story. I won't read it to you. Let me tell you the story. There, Jesus is, uh, he's having a meal at the home of Simon, who is a Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee, the religious leader. You may recall how this comes about. A Pharisee comes to Jesus and says, I'd like for you to come to my house and have a meal. And here's how I know Jesus is good and how he loves all peoples. Because he used to wear the Pharisees out for being religious stuff shirts. And yet, when he got invited to go have a meal, an intimate fellowship connection with them, that's, the, that's exactly where he went. You say, well, why would he go and eat with somebody he seemed to be so opposed to? You know that's why he came, right? For we were all at enmity with God, and yet he came to us. We didn't hunt him down. He found us. So, he's at Simon's house, and as he's there, a woman named Mary comes in and anoints Jesus' feet with perfume and, and, and tears and then wipes his feet with her hair and Simon the Pharisee, you'll remember, maybe he said, he said, I can't believe if Jesus was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman that was that was touching him. So Jesus confronts him and talks about it in the process of this next words of exchange. When you look it up later, you'll understand. When the next words of exchange, Jesus taught there. He confronted the prideful attitude of Simon. He 
restored the worth of the woman. He instructed the disciples about God's heart and what it meant to love others. He amazed the onlookers around about the ways of God who thought, yep, Simon must be right. He's the religious guy. And he says that Jesus had never had anything to do with people who weren't holy people. No, no, no. If Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with people who weren't holy, you and I would be lost forever. Because we were rebels against God when he came to us and demonstrated his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me give you another example. Jot this one down, Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. Here, Jesus is eating with an IRS agent. Here it is. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You may have a translation that says sinners to repentance. Jesus said, I came for those who are far from God. And where did he teach that lesson? At the table. Did you see when he pulled out his Bible and he referenced the, no, he didn't do that, did he? See, some folks think the only way you could teach something is to stand up and have a Bible lesson like this. But Jesus used the table as a time to connect the truths of God's word and apply it directly to real life. See, some say, oh, how do we make the Bible more relevant to people's lives? The Bible's already relevant. How do we show folks the relevance of it? Oh, Jesus was in that moment, he's modeling for, uh, for the Pharisees who were looking on and for Matthew and all of his rebellious friends. You're exactly why I came. You're precisely the reason I came to be a part of this. You're why I invaded the world. So that you know you're valuable to God, even though to this point you've rebelled against him. You're precious to him. By the way, Jesus' modeling of teaching while fellowshipping at the table is one of the reasons why we think around here it's important for a family to meet regularly at the family table. It's meaningful it's important. Now, excuse me while I step up on my soapbox for a second. I'm about to sound like an old guy. And the reason is, I'm an old guy. But I wonder if we've not lost out on something in the sacrifice of a regular family meals together. Because see, there was a time when around the family table, we learned stuff. We learned how people's lives went. We learned how days went. We talked about what people struggled with. We talked about what they were excited about. We fought over the biscuits. I mean, we passed the biscuits around the table without touching all of them. And, but now the last piece of chicken's fair game. Anybody could go for that. Unless at my house, unless dad was at the table. Dad got to always defer if he wanted it or not and decide. But we learned stuff at the family table. Hey, if we've lost that because we got busy in life and activities and circumstances, I wonder how our children, how the 
the next generation would even know how to apply the Word of God in real life. Sure, they'd know a memory verse because they came to, to church. And sure, they'd maybe know a Sunday school lesson because they had a connect group teacher who taught them. But how would they learn how to apply that into what they were struggling with over their ball game or over what a teacher said or over how they did on a test or finding their value over a friend's comment? Or how would they learn that unless we had that? That's why I think, I, now I know it's an I think, but now you're going to hear me say this a lot in days ahead. I think we could really increase Jesus's street cred in the next generation if we just took time to say, pause, set the phone down, we're going to eat a meal together two or three or four or five times a week. Where we're going to sit together and we're going to talk. And it doesn't have to be anything overly formal. It doesn't have to be a Sunday school class or a connect group or an Awana lesson. It could just be mom and dad saying, hey, you know what? What's going on? And how do we apply that? And how could we grow from that together? And thanks for sharing that. And let us pray for that for you. Jesus thought it was important. Man, if it worked for him, I wonder if it might work for moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandparents. You get the idea. Here's what I've concluded. I think if Jesus were walking around today, this breaking bread together, this doing life together was so significant that Jesus would be hanging out on Fridays with other people in their houses. He'd watch football on Saturday, probably in Clemson. I mean, why would you suffer? I mean, would you want to be overjoyed every time you did that? He would probably, that's where he'd spend Saturday. Sundays, he'd spend with his friends at church. Tuesday night, he'd be in a bowling league with some friends. And Thursday night, he'd be connected with one of the other friends in his connect group whose daughter had a dance recital. He'd be going to hang out at the dance recital with them. They'd do life together. Because after all, they're in it together. They're in it together. They had a shared mission and shared lives. And number three, they had a shared burden. Look at verse 42 again. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's the Greek word prosuke, which really, just think of it this way, it speaks of a communication with God. It's just communicating with God. Here's what's true. The early church, they were continually devoting themselves to communication, communion, to, to, to talking with, to sharing burdens with God. So many examples, but let me give you just a few that talk about togetherness of prayer. Because I know this, I know we can pray alone, but I also know that we can pray together. And I know that both are normal, but praying together seems to be a lost art or it's losing traction when it's actually a designed response and activity of God's people that they devoted themselves to. If you're taking notes, jot down James 5 verses 13 and following. James said, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they, now they're all together now, they're to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, catch it now, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective or as I memorized it, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Hey, here's what he said. 
There's something of normalcy among Christ followers in the early church that they devoted themselves to that involved corporate or communal or praying together. It was normal. Here's what I hear often. Well, I didn't share that because I just didn't want to burden anybody with my burdens. Well, that's cute, but I hear the heart. But don't you think that's the enemy just saying, hey, let me call you off all by yourself so you can be crushed under the weight of burden that God always intended for 10 or 12 or 15 people to help you carry. See, you can walk around with 500 pounds on your back all by yourself and tote it. Or you could realize and say, this is so heavy. And 10 friends come and get it. Now what was overwhelming is now not only manageable, but is actually a place where people come together to see the benefit of, of cooperation and to watch God work. Yeah, but I'd, it's not right for me to share people that I have that struggle in my life. They've got their own problems. Well, if it's not right, why did God affirm it? In fact, why did he instruct it? If it's bad, why did God seem to model it for you and I? Is God bad? Is he foolish? Is he ignorant of something we figured out? Of course not. That's ridiculous. The fact of the matter is, is sometimes we get the idea that we ought to hold on to stuff closely or we just don't want people to know we're broken. Hey, wait a minute. That might be it. Maybe that's why he goes on to say, and confess your sins one to another. Confess your brokenness one to another that you may be healed. You mean there's something in expressing the fact that we, we don't have it all together? I, I think so. I have to remind myself of that often because sometimes I want to point my finger at somebody else and go, you know, if you just fix this about you, then you would be, then, you know, that's really me I'm talking to. No, harder I preach, it's really me I'm preaching. Are y'all with me in the room or I'm going to start talking to the internet and see if anybody out there is listening. They prayed for suffering and they prayed in confession of sin. By the way, that's not a one-off thing. Acts 1 and verse 24, the church together prayed about the apostle who would replace Judas. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, I'm just going to give you these. Peter and John came together to pray in the temple at the hour of prayer. By the way, they were joining the rest of the church that was already there. In Acts chapter 6, the church prayed together about those who would serve as deacons. And the apostles prayed before they even laid hands on them to, to set them apart. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's on the rooftop while people are downstairs. And he's praying and God gives him a vision about the expansion of the ministry to the non-Jews. And oh, by the way, when they got there, Peter told them all what God had been doing. And they all affirmed that together. In Acts chapter 12, the church prayed for Peter's release from prison. And the church was gathered together at Mary. says, you remember the story, perhaps. They were praying, but I even say, I don't even know that they were fully believing. Don't you remember when Peter released from prison, goes and knocks on the door, Rhoda comes to the door. He says, hey, it's Peter, let me in. She says, eek, and she runs back inside to the prayer meeting. And she says, there's someone outside claiming he's Peter. They said, that's crazy, he's in jail. Be quiet while we pray for his release. 
You must have seen a ghost. It couldn't be him. We're praying for him to get out of jail. The church met together regularly and prayed. And it was the church that Paul instructed as we looked at last Sunday night in Ephesians 6 where he asked them to pray for boldness for him that he might have the courage to speak the word of God and that he not shrink back from it. And it goes on and on and on. Here's the point. That's normal church community. It was normal for the church to corporately gather and to pray together for burdens in communion with God. And I might suggest, since I'm preaching now, I might suggest it's still normal today. And when it doesn't happen, that's what's abnormal. When the church doesn't gather together in communion before God to pray and to beg Him and to share burdens together. They shared their missions. They shared their lives. They shared their burdens. One last thing, they shared responsibility. They had a shared responsibility. Look at verse, drop down to verses 44 and 45. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, I don't know about you, but the first few times I've read it, in fact, it always strikes me. I go, man, that is a weird set of verses. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. Jesus so radically changed their life that they looked and when they saw one of their one another's with need, they went above and beyond in generosity to meet that need because they struggled with the idea that someone could be without while they had two and they didn't take care of this one. That's where they struggled. This was a big deal for them. In fact, as I've told folks for years, I think this is one of the clearest evidences of God changing people's lives because this just doesn't come naturally. This kind of activity doesn't come naturally. People don't just naturally up and sacrifice what they've worked hard for and earned in order to take care of someone who's without. They don't naturally do that. It's got to be something God supernaturally works in us for Him to then work through us. But the church together, because they're in it together, took care of one another. Now maybe they had to and we don't and maybe that's the deal. Because see when they separated from Judaism they often forsook their family and their security and their standing and even their livelihoods. And yet God birthed within them a spirit of generosity and a sense of responsibility and they sacrificed for one another. And consequently, that's also not a one-off thing. In fact, if you follow it all the way through Acts and into the epistle, you'll see this right here happens over and over and over again. It's normal Christianity throughout the rest of the New Testament. Here's one example. Acts chapter 4, verse 43. You just take that note it's that and follow it. Shares the same concept, but that's where Barnabas sold. It said, the scripture says that he sold his property, he sold his property, brought the proceeds to the apostles and gave it to them that they might distribute to those who had needs. And it was a big deal. It was such a big deal. God recorded it in the scripture and held on to it. It was a big deal. And apparently everybody thought it was a big deal because the people sitting two chairs over, Ananias and Sapphira, they went out and sold some property and they brought part of it back and they gave it to the apostles, the part of it. But that story's in Acts chapter 5. 
Because they told the apostles, this is all of it, but it was really part of it. And you, rem- you may remember, if you don't, this is such an interesting read. It'll make you toss your Bible across the room if you've not ever read it before. Because here's what, here's what Peter said. He said, it was never required of you to do this. It's generosity. It was never required. Barnabas wasn't required. You're not required. In fact, what you did was a great thing, but you've, you've chosen in doing it to lie to the Holy Spirit and to all these people around here. And because of that, the Bible says Ananias and Sapphira both met their demise. They both dropped dead right then within three hours of one another in a church meeting. They said things got tense after that. That the church was filled with fear and all. Yeah. Do you know why they were afraid? Because they found out that lying in church could cost you your life. Man, I hope we never lose the wonder of that. That when we say something or do something, we say it or do it before a holy God. And we might be able to fool the people left and right of us. We might even be able to fool ourselves, but we'll never fool him. And when we run off and do things just to get, just to get uh, acknowledged, but not to honor him, we put ourselves in a very dangerous place. In fact, it was so dangerous that it said that the church drew together in fear, but they wouldn't have anything to do with the apostles. (laughs) They said if Peter came to a fellowship, they just kicked him on out in case they wanted to talk about going fishing. Because they didn't want Peter to say, now you said that was 12 inches. They didn't want to risk it, so they wouldn't have anything to do with them. Y'all figure out what to do with that. That'll, That'll help you later. What I think is interesting out of all of this is that they never had to, but they wanted to. It wasn't a demand, but it was a display of grace and it was a delight in generosity and in caring for one another. And here's what's crazy cool about all of it. The church, which had become so enamored with Jesus and so committed to one another in community, they saw God doing powerful work in their midst. Awesome stuff, the scripture says. For us, they were all feeling a sense of awe and many signs and wonders were taking place among them. And, and it was blessing them. It was so different. It was so powerful. It was so redeeming. It was so attractive that people flocked to it. People heard the gospel. People yielded to Christ. People were converted. And God was glorified. And the Lord added, it said, thousands and thousands and thousands to the family. Why? Because there was something different about this. And by the way, that's not revival. You got to first be vived before you can get revived. This was gospel advance. God was pushing back darkness through this in it together yieldedness to community that the church had failed. And I've wondered, what would it be like if God did that again? Because you can't manufacture it. All you could do would be what the early church did was said, we're devoted to it. We're devoted to, to the doctrines. We're devoted to fellowship. We're devoted to doing life together. We're devoted to sharing burdens together. We share a mission together. And we share responsibility for one another together. And somehow in their devotion to that, God dropped in in the midst of them. And it caused all the peoples around them to look in and say, there's something different about that than what you thought you knew. See, we live in a day and age where the church is a punchline to many pundit stories. But not this church. This church right here. 
This church got it in such a way that God said, I'm going to dwell in the midst of them. And then he started showing out and doing God's stuff and lives were changed. And people said, that's what I've been looking for all my life. And they wanted it. And thousands were converted. Hey, listen, we say this. I said this Thursday night. But we say this that we know that in Nash and Edgecombe County that 96,000 people live and die every They live their entire lives without ever being connected to a faith group, much less a church. 96,000 people. And we can't say we're burdened for the lost unless we're devoted to the one and others that cause God to drop in in the midst so that God will do his saving work and draw them in. If we're really concerned for them, we're doing the one thing we can control, which was this, the shared mission, the shared lives, the shared fellowship, the shared responsibility. If we're doing that, God's doing powerful things that causes them, causes the world to take notice and say, that's what I've wanted all my life. That's why I joined that club and that group and that organization. And that's why I took up that cause. Because I wanted that in my life. In reality, we live in a world where hundreds of churches die and close their doors every year in our country alone. And many more are dying on the vine, but God does some things with some churches that's amazing he shows his power and gives them effectiveness and provision and community and joy and family and I don't know about you but because I'm looking forward and going I got more days behind me than I probably got ahead of me I've come to think you know what that's where I want to spend my life seeing God move like that Seeing God do that. Seeing God's people so committed to one another that God said, I can move in and show myself strong through them and see lives that are broken restored. See people who are aimless find purpose. See those who are struggling find others who will share their burden and could see the gospel advanced. What if God would let us push back on the 96,000? And that's just two counties. That doesn't even account the counties around us. What if God would let us be a part of seeing dozens, not one or two, but dozens every year mobilized to the nations? What if God would raise up from among us our daughters and our sons, our grandchildren, and would send them to the far-reaching places to be the first ones to take God's good news to people who are desperate for it and don't even know it. What if God would use us to that end? Would we give ourselves to that? The early church said yes. But you and I have to answer that for ourselves. But the church that says yes, God drops in the midst of them and works his wonders through them. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, Chris, I'm a Christ follower, but man, I'm, I don't see that yet. Hey, here's maybe why. Is there something in the devoted to's that you're not devoted to? And if you're not devoted to it, but it's necessary in the devoted to's, why don't you tell God you're sorry and devote yourself to it? I'm not devoted to corporate prayer. You could be. I'm not devoted to fellowship. You could be. I'm not devoted to intimacy. You could be. I'm not devoted to the mission. You could be. You could start over today. 
you could join the rest of us and start over today. Or maybe you're here and maybe you've just come in, you've done religious stuff in your life, but you've never been a Christ follower. You've never yielded your life and you've thought, if I could ever see that, that's what I would do. And I'm saying, come be a part of it because that's what we're going to do. That's who we are. That's who God made us to be. And that's what we could experience together. But it begins with a decision. And a decision begins with a choice and a place. And right now is that choice. And right now is that place. Are we in it together? Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. This is Pastor Chris, and I pray that the message you've just heard has been a blessing to you directly from the heart of God. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at englewoodbaptist.com next, or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us to reach a wider audience with the life-changing message of hope in Jesus Christ. We hope you'll join us again next week, and until next time, may the Lord bless you.